Israel Connection, coming to you on JA Community Radio, broadcasting live on 88FM and streaming over the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. In the second half of today's show, I will be speaking live with Melbourne-based author and journalist Julie Zigo and author, mentor, writing teacher and speaker Lee Kaufman, who masterminded the initiative Jews for Humanity, an open letter signed by Jewish creatives, academics and allies. Aaron Ariel Levy is a serial social entrepreneur, a professional community organiser and a thinker who believes Judaism can inspire and inform all walks of life. Aharon is co-founder of Makom, the Israeli umbrella organisation of intentional communities and of the Hakel, the first global incubator for Jewish intentional communities which was awarded the Jerusalem Unity Prize in 2020 and was a partner at Call Answering, an AI-based call centre solutions startup. Aharon is now the General Director of the Or Torah Interfaith Centre, the leading organisation of its kind in the Orthodox world. He lives with his wife and their five children in Garin Shuva, a community next to the Gaza border. Aaron, we spoke last time on my program in the middle of 2019 when you were a guest of Limuroz. Uh, welcome to the, this, uh, this little interview today, Aaron. Thank you. Good morning, Tony. Thank, thank you for having me. You told your audience back then how in 2009 you founded an intentional community just five kilometres from the Gaza border, which has grown and thrived despite experiencing numerous military operations and constant missile attacks. So that obviously begs the question, what happened to your community on October 7th? Yeah, of course. Uh, so since, since the last, last time we spoke, the community actually continued to grow. And now we have about uh, 60 families, I believe something like three or 400 kids. So on October 7th, we have this very, in our community, that we do the hakafot of Simchat Torah, you know, we're dancing with the Torah scrolls. We do it uh, early in the morning at 5 a.m., before the morning prayers. So I went there at 5 a.m., we did the dancing. I guess some, we're one, one, one of the only communities in Israel that actually got a chance to do that on October 7th. And then... 6.28, we're, we're just about to start the morning prayer at sunrise, we hear the missile. So in my area, you actually hear the Iron Dome goes out before the alarm goes out. So we see the missiles and we say, okay, like another day of rockets, we're kind of used to it. And no one was too anxious about it. I just went home to see that the kids are in the bomb shelter, to see that everything is okay, to see my wife. And then after an hour or two, we started hearing uh, gunshots. Now, I've been in the IDF for long enough, for like 20 years, I guess, and I know to differentiate different guns and, and iron domes, and like it's, it's not the kind of sound that we're used to hear in my area. We didn't really know what was going on, but we did open our cell phones just to be in touch with the other, uh, the other men in the community. And after about an, another hour, we started gathering together, and we realized that something is going on. Now, I, I know hearing this today is, it may sound ridiculous because now we know what went on. But back then, I'm talking about like 9 a.m. maybe on October 7th, nobody really knew what was going on. Like there were bits and pieces of information. You can't really tell who is shooting who and why. But we said, okay, let's, let's take our, all, all we had was uh, pistols, like small uh, handguns. 
we went to positions around the moshav, around the village, just to protect it and to see if, if anyone is coming. What we know now is that the reason that our moshav was not infiltrated, I mean, we saw it in the making, but we, did, we didn't make sense of it back then. So we saw two helicopters going right above us and landing about one kilometer to the east of the moshav. And then only one of them came back. That's what we saw on October 7th itself. What we now know, because we've did some investigations and we talked to the pilots and we, and we found a way to, to get information, what happened is that those two pilots were, were, were very creative. They didn't wait for orders. They just got on the helicopters and they asked, where can we find soldiers who are ready to fight? And then someone told them they're in one of the bases in the central part of Israel. So they went there, they took them, and they brought them about a kilometer to, to the east of Shuva, and they stopped the terrorists from getting from coming to Shuva. We heard the fighting, but didn't, we didn't know that was a story. And one of the helicopters was was hit by a missile. Everybody got out safe, thank God. But uh, it's still there. So the helicopter is still there, and it's I mean what 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 remained of it. And, and that's how our Shaf was was saved. And then around 12, 1 p.m., something like that, I was called to the entrance to the Moshav. I'm a combat medic, so I was called as a medical uh, a medical force to help the other medics who were there to take care of the wounded. And I've been a medic since 2003 or four, and I've never seen this amount of uh, wounded soldiers, civilians in, in such a short amount of time. And actually, the entrance to Shuba, because Shuba was not infiltrated, it was considered some sort of a safe zone. So that's where they gathered all the wounded civilians and soldiers from Be'eri, Nachal Oz, Kfar Aza, from all that area. That's where they came in. Uh, we did a triage, you know, just to uh, differentiate and decide who needs what, what treatment and what's the severity of the wound. And then we send them uh, on, on to, the, to the hospital. Also, it's, it's the amount, but also in such a short matter of time, uh, I've never seen this amount of, of, uh, of wounded uh, people in my life, and I've been a medic since 2003, 2004. I don't, I don't believe many people uh, in Israel have seen this this kind of thing ever, because we didn't have enough vehicles to evacuate everybody, uh, to transfer them to the to the hospital. What I did is I, I called my, my friends from my community and just told them to come with their own cars. They formed a line, and we just put people on cars, uh, and they took them on, in private cars to the hospital. Anyone who could see it was not too badly wounded was put on a regular private car. The others, we used whatever ambulances we could find. And then as, as time went by, we started getting also helicopters from the army who have some more you know, skilled staff and better equipment. By nightfall, the situation sort of stabilized. And then I was called up to, do, to join my unit in the north, where I still serve to this day as a, on, on reserve duty. And I went there, and the entire Moshav has been evacuated. So everybody, you know, my family is in one place in the Arava. Other families are um, in a kibbutz next to Jerusalem. People just have to leave, had to leave the Moshav and find other solutions until we can come back. So how much of your time are you spending uh, doing Miluim since the attack on October 7th? What, what time have you had to spend? Well, it's been 34 days, I think, since October 8th when I joined my unit because I couldn't join them on, on the 7th. And I'm spending most, most of my time there. I get a 24-hour break every week or two just to see the family. And the rest of the time, we just uh, we do all kinds of missions, protecting uh, iron domes, protecting uh, all kinds of villages in the north, making sure that the roads uh, stay open. I can't talk too much about it, but in general, you know, we do whatever is needed to, to enable the maneuvering forces to do what they need to do in, uh, in Gaza. I understand. 
you're involved with the intentional community movement, aren't you? That's uh, how we spoke uh, when we spoke last time. I yeah. can't see any response from the Foundation for the Intentional Community uh, to the assault against the Israeli kibbutzim, uh, Kfar Aza and Ba'eri, near the Gaza border. Uh, is that uh, Does that concern you? Have you got a close connection with that foundation? They're only one of the partners we work with. I did get a lot of uh, you know, supporting messages and, and sympathy from many partners uh, around the world, both Jewish and non-Jewish, of course. Uh, I haven't been in touch with them specifically. But for example, my professor at, uh, at Harvard, where I'm, when I'm doing my, my postdoc at the moment, was very supportive. Despite what you hear about Harvard, you know, it's, it's, it's a big place with the, the diverse opinions. They were actually very considerate. Like I told them, you know, I can't come to Harvard right now physically. And they agreed to, to start my postdoc position uh, online until I, can, until I can go there. And I'm doing whatever I can during my Miluim. You know, I, you have some time here and there. It's not like you do 24-7 Guardian or something. So I, I used my spare time to, to carry on with that, with that work. And more surprisingly, I also get very encouraging messages and support messages from the other job I do, which is the Interfaith Dialogue. So I get many Muslim friends, you know, professors of, of Islam, imams, religious leaders, and actually encourage us in this war against Hamas because they understand that Hamas is ISIS and Hamas is, is dangerous to Islam much more than, it, than it's dangerous to the Jewish state, actually. Most of them won't go public about it, and I can understand them because it's, uh, they don't live in democratic countries. What they might suffer is more than just uh, shaming on Facebook. They, they might get killed, they might get uh, violently attacked. So I understand why many of them are hesitant to go public about it. But we do see more and more of them do that. Not enough, but still, I think it's encouraging. There's a, web, there's a Facebook page and Twitter and all that called Islam Against Hamas that you can look at, where there's a, almost every day like a post by uh, Muslim leaders who condemn Hamas, who not necessarily support Israel, no, openly, but I understand that the story here is not about that. that nothing here has to do with the, with the liberation of Palestine or anything like that, or the occupation. That that's not the story. The story is that Iran is trying to expand its dominance in the Middle East, and they're using Hamas and Hezbollah and other uh, proxy militias to to do that, and they're using the Palestinians as a as a tool. Like they, I, I care more about Palestinian lives than they than they than they do. They, they, they could not care less about uh, any Palestinians. They just used them as a tool in their big strategic game of uh, taking over the Middle East. What you seem to be suggesting is that uh, eradicating Hamas won't be sufficient, that uh, Iran is the root of the problem and that's where um, uh, something needs to happen. Yeah, Iran is the root of the problem, but that's something that the whole world will have to solve together. It's not something that Israel... I mean, Israel can do it, potentially, by itself. But it's not the right thing to do. Uh, it has to be a global, not, not a global, at least a Western effort to to push back Iran. Because again, Iran is, is a threat to the Western world. It's not a threat to Israel, or not only to Israel. Uh, it, it's a threat to everything we believe in. It's a threat to liberty, to freedom. You know, one thing that, that is most mind-boggling for me is how LGBTQ organizations uh, support Hamas and Iran. I mean, that, that's crazy. I mean, do you know what they do to LGBTQ folks in Iran? It's not they, they don't give them a job, they don't treat them nicely. They kill them, they hang them, they, they decapitate them. It's, uh, 
how can you support a regime like that if you're an LGBTQ organization? It's it's really mind-boggling. Uh, I think most of it has to do with ignorance. Not I, I don't assume people are evil. I just assume people are ill-informed and uh, manipulated into supporting causes that they would not that they would never support uh, support if they had the real information and the real knowledge about what's going on. Because in Iran, as we know, there's uh, quite a groundswell of uh, of uh, public sentiment that's against the regime. And uh, it would seem like there's certainly an opportunity there for some kind of uprising if the people can get greater confidence to overthrow the mullahs in Iran. Yeah, well, we do get, not only not only me personally, but Israel in general, get a lot of support from Iranians who are outside of Iran. Iranians yeah. who live in Europe, in America, they support Israel. They know this has, this has nothing to do with uh, liberating Palestine. That's not the story at all. Uh, and they support this cause. Obviously, they have many partners inside Iran as well. But as as you know, Iran is not a democratic uh, regime. They they kill those who oppose them. I don't have enough intelligence or information from what's going on inside there to tell you if there if this is the opportunity. I really hope it will be solved in a non-violent manner. That the Iranian people themselves will overthrow this evil regime, and this will change the entire Middle East and the entire world. Because once this regime is is uh, overthrown. Then all the funding and support for Hezbollah, for uh, Hamas, for the Houthis in Iran, in uh, in Yemen, a few other organizations in Syria, all of that will be gone because they they all rely on, on Iran to support them. And by the way, another funny thing is that Iran, as you know, is a Shiite country, yes, which is a minority Islam, and somehow they have been able to manipulate the Sunni world, which is the majority of Islam. That's Egypt and Saudi Arabia and the majority of, of Muslims are, are Sunnis. And they've been able to manipulate them to support their Shiite cause. Although it's obvious that once Iran gets what it wants, uh, its next, next goal will be the Sunnis. I mean, they're not interested in any, in any reconciliation with the Sunni world. They're interested in either, either converting them to Shiite or killing them. That's, that's their strategy. You know, we live in a funny world where... LGBTQ uh, pro folks support Iran, Sunnis support Hamas and Iran, it's it, and Hezbollah. I think historians will have to try and make sense of this uh, really messy story. Now, just for our listeners, I should point out that we've been trying to, to do this interview for um, quite a few days, maybe a week or so or more, and I've, I've had some conversation with you in the build-up to it. Of course, because you've been having to serve, it's been difficult to nail you down, Aaron. But in our conversations, um, you've been talking about uh, your quest to, to associate or connect with moderate Muslims. I've told you what our situation is like in Australia, where you won't find any Muslim who won't uh, stand apart from the from the Muslim community. They're all marching in lockstep uh, in terms of opposing what Israel is doing. I've also shared with you an article uh, written by a leading uh, rabbi who expressed uh, very much uh, a disillusionment with uh, the interfaith movement. I'm referring to Rabbi Ganendi, which I shared with you. So what yeah. uh, what do you make of, of all of this? You talking about Iran as being a culprit, but a lot of people see the roots of the problem lying within uh, Islam itself. Well, I, I was never illusioned by interfaith dialogue or Islam, so I, I don't have to be disillusioned. My approach to this, uh, I would just have to say, I'm the managing director of the Ottawa Interfaith Center, led by Rav Yaakov Nagan who is a leading figure in the interfaith dialogue scene over the last uh, 20 years. 
Uh, I would say we, we are one or even the biggest uh, center of this kind uh, in Israel. I'm in, in the weeds, as we say, of, the, of this, uh, of this uh, scene. And I have to say, my approach and Rav Yaakov's approach was never, I would say, what I would call, for lack of a better word, a teddy bear approach. We, we never thought that what we need to do is just, uh, yeah, let's talk about peace, love, tolerance, we all love each other, let's just get along, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't believe in that, I never believed in that, so, I, I, so there's no illusion to be disillusioned from. Uh, my approach is that, uh, yeah, Islam, in Islam, there are several vectors. Some of them are very dangerous for Islam itself and for the and for humanity in general. Many Muslims recognized and acknowledge that as well. Uh, but there are other vectors, and we have a few options. I mean, let, let, let me let me put it this way: what what Iran and Hamas are trying to do, and we've said it. You can you can look at our articles that we published before October seventh. It's not like we changed our mind because of that. We've said before for years that what Hamas is trying to do. Uh, as an as a, as a proxy, as an extended arm of Iran, is to take a local local conflict that has religious aspects and turn it into a global world religious world war that has a local front which they control and they lead. That was their strategy all along, and we've been saying this for a long time. And, and our mission was and still is to ally with the Muslim forces who do not want. A religious world war who understand that this is this is dangerous uh, again based on their own religious beliefs and based on deep learning, learning of islam and not because they've adopted western values of uh, peace love and tolerance uh, and ally with them against those forces in islam and there are also forces like this not to the same extent i'm not comparing but there are some forces in judaism as well that uh, even even if they don't understand it what they're calling for is actually a world war between judaism and islam and the last uh, thing we need i think in israel is to turn this conflict into a war between uh, the Jewish people, which is uh, 14 million people, to the Muslim world, which is, which is 1.4 billion people. Uh, that's not something we want to do. It's not going to add good for any one of us. And we actually want to find the partners there. And as I said, there are partners. There are imams and leaders in Islam who understand that Hamas is a problem, that ISIS is a problem. They've published fatwas. The fatwa is a, is a halakhic, like a religious ruling in Islam. They write articles, they do conferences, they invite us to, our, to their conferences. I can't share all the names and I can't share all the details right now because not all of them are willing to, to be exposed at the moment. But I can tell you that it's not only one or two. I can't tell you if, if it's the majority or not. It's very hard to assess. I mean, the majority are, are, by and large, like in any nation or religion, the majority are either passive or ignorant or both. That's not a... Uh, that, that, that's that, what what we care about is, is the leaders and uh, what we're trying to do at Ottawa Stone at the Ottawa Interfaith Center is actually lead a process of deep reconciliation with, between Judaism and Islam. By we have a bit midrash, we have a think tank that studies Islam and Quran seriously. We have counterparts in the Muslim world who do who are starting to do the same with the Jewish sources. We're talking about opening uh, journals together and websites and, and publishing this. Because we have to go deeper than, and I think that's the disillusionment that's, that I would agree with. The illusion that if we just talk about peace, love, and tolerance, and be nice to each other, and shake hands, then this will just wipe out 1,500 years of conflict, that's an illusion. That's a fairy tale, and that's something we never believed in. What we need to do is a deep strategic process of really drilling down to the sources and roots of Islam, together try and find ways to reconcile those two major religions. 
like what happened with Judaism and Christianity. People tend to forget that, but until the Nostra Aetate in 1965, the following documents came afterwards, Judaism and Christianity were the conflict which is much, much worse than Judaism and, and Islam. And to a large extent, that conflict has been resolved. I mean, there's still, there's still anti-Semitism, there's still white supremacy, but by and large, the Christian world and the Jewish world are living peacefully side by side and collaborating on many things. You have many uh, Israel supporters in the in the Christian world. And that's something that if I would have told this to my great grandparents or your grandparents, they would they would never believe that, that Christians would, would one day support a Jewish state. Uh, and we're in the same process with Islam, but it takes time. It has to take time. It has to be deep. What we're trying is to find the support within the Jewish people as well. You know, rabbis and supporters, people who are willing to also fund this this process for the long term, and understand that it, the, 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 there can be a solution, but it's it's a marathon. It's going to take five, ten, fifteen years at least of deep work, and then we can achieve something. If people are uh, trying to achieve, you know, like uh, quick solutions and uh, again just a peace, love, tolerance, that's that's not going to work, and that's the illusion we should all wake up from. Because you're referring to a fifteen hundred year old conflict. When you look at it from the other side of the the people who are the pro-Palestinian supporters that only uh, seem to look at it in terms of uh, an issue which has been Israel's occupation for the last uh, uh, 75 years, it's a different perspective. There's no, they are trying to dismiss the religious element in this whole conflict, just making it uh, a conflict that's over Israel's occupation of Palestinian land. Well, again, as, as I said, most people are ignorant. They don't know the history. They don't know the details. And they believe what they're told to believe. If people believe that the conflict is uh, is just about territories, then you know, they, <laughs> everybody's entitled to believe whatever they want. But you know, we have proof on the ground. Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip in 2005 to the last centimeter. At least in Gaza, the territorial conflict was resolved. No Jew was left there, no settlement, nothing, no army base. Israel withdrew 100% to the 1948 borders. The borders set in 75 years ago and agreed upon by the entire world, by the UN. Everybody agreed that this is Israel's border. And yet, we're in this conflict. And if you read what Hamas writes and publishes and say, they're not talking about the territorial conflict. They use it as, as, a, as an excuse. They're talking about a religious war. That's how they, do you know how they call this terrorist operation that they started, they call it Tufan al-Aqsa. Now, Tufan, in yeah. Arabic, and also in Aramaic, funnily enough, is the word that the Quran uses for the flood, for the Noah flood, for the biblical flood. So they, they refer to deep religious stories and, and ideas. I mean, that, that's, that's the reference point. They're not talking about the 1948, or, or that, that's not the story. The story is the flood of Alexa, so that's that's only one small example. But again, if people don't read what Hamas writes and says, and they only rely on uh, tweets and Facebook posts, that's part of uh, no, the, the reason I'm here to uh, talking to you. Besides the fact that I love you and I appreciate your work, I think is to try and it, uh, to the extent possible drive away at least a, at least a bit of that ignorance and tell people the truth. Like what is the true story? And uh, it's not about territories it's not about 1948 it's and it won't be solved if we only if we get stuck if we keep get, getting stuck on the, on 1948 we have to go deeper and try to solve the problem at, at its root at its root and then 
maybe then we can find a solution. One thing about the Rabbi Ganendi's article that I want to mention in relation to uh, interfaith, he, he, he said, and I quote, I don't believe the time to have that conversation is while we are still engaged in a war. Now is not the time to resume interfaith events. Would you agree with uh, him on that point, on that score? To some extent. Depends on the kind of events. I can tell you, and again, I'm not going to say names and, and specific organizations, we were invited to a conference next month, actually, in December, by a very, very large and significant Muslim organization in a very, very large and significant Muslim country. I can go there myself because I don't have an American passport. My partner can go there. And that conference is going to deal with the religious aspect of this war and with the de-radicalization. Many Muslims are worried about the radicalization of the youth, and they're trying to combat it by de-radicalizing their, their own religion. And they invited us as rabbis come to that conference and talk and share our perspective. So I think that to these kind of conferences, which are strategic, which are with the leaders of Islam, which go to the, they try to go to the root of the problem and talk about the real theological issues and challenges, I think 100% yes, we should be there. We need to go there. We have to be there. And we need to choose, we need to take advantage of any opportunity we have to talk to leaders, even even now, even during the war. There's another type of conferences, which I believe are beginning is. Uh, referring to, which is also important, and I'm not dismissing any kind of interfaith dialogue. I think that it's all very important and we should always uh, try and reach out our hand to other religions and other people. Other conferences are more, I would say, general. They talk about about peace and love and trying to live together and trying to get along and that's important. These kind of conferences, I agree. That's Right now, it is not the right time to, to go there. Uh, and I assume it will, it's going to take time until those kind of gatherings will resume. But as I said earlier, our focus at the Ottawa Interfaith Center uh, from, from the beginning was the most strategic kind of, of meetings. Although we do go to all the other conferences and, you know, we participate in them. But I think our, our goal is to really work, work strategically with the main leaders uh, of Islam and those who can make a difference and, uh, and also talk about the real issues. Like... And ask them, how do you reconcile this surah with a surah is a chapter in the Quran, uh, with this surah and this ayah, ayah is, a, is a verse with, a, with another one. One talks very favorably about B'nai Israel, about the people of Israel. Another one talks uh, more negatively about the Jews. The Quran differentiates between B'nai Israel and the, and the Yehudim and the and Yahud. These are different uh, categories. And let, let's talk about the issues themselves and how do we build Muslim perspective on the Jewish people that's that will enable us to live not only live side by side but actually to live together and partner in bringing the 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 positive message of god to the world and we do the same work internally we work inside the jewish people and investigate our own sources and what should be our relation to other religions and that's not a simple question i mean many jews believe that islam and christianity are some sort of a historical accident that should never happen it's a mistake and one day they would all leave their religions and become either Jews or Bnei Noach, you know, like uh, Noachites. Yes, Noachites, that, yes. Fair, that, that's a fair perspective. But, you know, we just published a book last year about that that, that shows sources from the Rambam, from, from Rav Kook, from really the, the greatest sages of the uh, Rav Zaks, of course, uh, of the Jewish people. And, and they show that, and we show it at least, that it's much more complex than that. In the Jewish framework, there is room for other monotheistic religions 
that have their own path and their own, their own culture, their own language to God. And we need to find ways to work with them and not to diminish them or dismiss them or try to convert them. So there's work internally in the Jewish people, there's work externally with the Muslim world, there's work that they need to do internally. And many of them are doing that because, as I said, many of them want to de-radicalize their own religion. Just to give you like one small fact that, again, people don't know, most people killed by ISIS and Hamas, most I'm talking about like 95%, are Muslims and Arabs, not Jews. They kill their own people much more than they kill us. So it's a problem for them more than it's a problem for us. So, um, and, you know, we just need to find people. You have to find people who, um, with whom you can uh, relate and, and, and establish uh, understanding and relationship. Yeah, understanding relationship and, and deep learning solution uh, that goes beyond just uh, let's just all get along. Yes. We need to really talk about the theological problems and obstacles in each religion that prevent us from getting along. Now, just before we, we finish up, can you've been talking about this uh, interface centre that uh, you're connected with. Can you spell it out for us? Because I'm not sure that it was clear what the name of it is. Yeah, so I'm, I'm the managing director of the Or Torah Interface Centre. O is O-H-R, uh, Torah is Torah, you know, T-O-R-A-H, and the Interface uh, Centre. It's part of the uh, Ortoa Stone, which I assume many people who listen to us know. It's the huge network of educational institutions, and now led by Rabbi uh, Kenneth uh, Candy Render, based in Jerusalem. And as part of the 40 plus institutions that they have in their network, so the Interfaith Center is one of them. And it is dedicated to this kind of work and to, on the one hand, harnessing and educating the Jewish people internally about the importance of working with other religions and respecting them. And also reaching our hand externally to to foster uh, mutual respect and reconciliation with with other religions. Our focus is Islam because we think that with the Christian world, I won't say that the job is done, but we're in a, in a whole different situation right now than we've been less than a hundred years ago. Islam should be our focus uh, now, and I think that this war should not uh, discourage us from doing that. It should actually actually encourage us to invest even more in this direction because that's the only solution. And as I said, do this to the, to the Israeli cause to eradicate Hamas. Um, and we, we need to grab that with both our hands. Thank you very much, uh, Aaron, for speaking in these difficult, trying circumstances that uh, you find yourself. I really appreciate you sharing what uh, you're doing and your experiences uh, since October 7. Thank you so much, David. Keep up the good work. And I hope to see you either in Israel or in Australia soon. Yeah, not tomorrow. Not tomorrow, but soon <laughs> enough. Okay. <laughs> I've just been speaking with Aaron Ariel Lavi. He's a social entrepreneur, professional community organizer, and a thinker who believes Judaism can inspire and inform all walks of life. Now, I'd like to welcome Melbourne-based author and journalist Julie Zigo and author, mentor and writing teacher and speaker Lee Kaufman to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio, Jewish Community Radio. We're going to be speaking about their responses to what has followed after the Hamas atrocity that was inflicted on Israel on October the 7th. So welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to hear your voices. We know we're all connected 
Now, Julie, if I could start with you, I read your Searing and Straight from the Soul article, The Vanishing of October the 7th. Could you tell us about the grief that you've been feeling that you expressed so powerfully in what you wrote? Well, I think we've all been feeling it. Uh, We were witness to the most extraordinary atrocities. And if I can say this, I'm not quite sure how to put this in a way that people won't get the wrong impression. The victims of this particular atrocity were, in fact, the perfect victims in a sense that they were not easily othered, I guess. You know, they were not living in the West Bank. They, you know, didn't look different to to people in the West. These were old socialists on their kibbutzim. These were young people at a peace dance rave. And yet there was a extraordinary silence, um, as as Lee has picked up on in the, in the letter that she organised, I'm sure you'll speak about, a silence from right, a, a, people across institutions where you would think that they would know better. Um, and almost immediately that sense of the kind of victim and perpetrator were kind of almost reversed, almost instantly the next day, you know, so that we had this terrible tragedy and already the next day the anti-Israel demonstrations had started and there was this sense that Israel um, was being cast in, in, by many people and we're talking about people, again, in the most elite institutions uh, as well as, as well, I suppose, as certain communities as kind of irredeemable that there was, it, it was a, a nation born in original sin and that nothing that was done to their citizens could ever be beyond the pale. I think that's, that's the kind of ideology that we're seeing at work. And I think that every day since then, uh, there has just been more and more um, things that are, have gone on that have disappointed us and made us wonder, well, where are we in the pecking order of humanity, we as Jewish people? And so that was the kind of um, anguish that my piece was born out of. Um, And again, it was particularly pointing the finger at various, various of our elite institutions that I would say have, you would think, have a job to weigh the evidence and be honest brokers but the reality is that um that particular liberal philosophy that i have had that i have had um social democratic philosophy that's been superseded by a different way of seeing the world yes that is unfortunately the case and we see i think uh jews of of all different persuasions uh standing together which has been uh, something we haven't seen for a long time with your with your the piece you wrote, uh, you mentioned, Julie, that you still were a member of your union, which is the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance. Uh, I've um, seen the statement of coming from you, your union, only on the sixth of November, a month after the Hamas atrocity. Uh, are you still a member? Well, I'm not quite sure which statement you're speaking of. There are two statements, as I understand it. I did see one statement that was written 
uh, and signed by members of the union. That statement was utterly atrocious. I mean, the people who signed it claimed to be journalists. And this particular statement said that uh, this is not a religious war. Well, I mean, Hamas might have different things to say on that issue. Um, there is another statement. I mean, that wasn't a statement officially authorised by my union. Since then, they have put out a statement. It is okay, except that it calls for a ceasefire. And while there are certainly valid arguments in favour of a ceasefire, um, there are also valid arguments against a ceasefire. Whether they like it or not, that's a contested issue. And again, a journalist's union should be very aware of its responsibility to be an honest broker and weigh the evidence. And while maritime unions can take whatever position they like, I don't think that that's a luxury that a journalist's union has. So, I, yes, I believe I will, after all, have to resign. Yes, in the, uh, the statement I've seen from the 6th of November, Julie, the statement I've seen, uh, there's, uh, uh, there's uh, bemoaning the death of a freelance Palestinian journalist who worked for the ABC 730 program. Uh, I wish uh, there was some uh, statements being made about the journalists that uh, were informed about the attack that Hamas were about to commit and were there on the scene. Uh, ready to film it and transmit it uh, uh, through the media and to families back in Hamas's home territory. Anyway, uh, now, Lee, coming coming to you, if I can, uh, a letter in the Literary Journal Overland prompted you as a Melbourne Jewish writer to create a website with an open letter for Jewish writers, members of the creative community and academics, which has generated a tidal wave of engagement. The professed aim of the website titled Jews for Humanity is to, I quote, raise awareness among our peers and organisations about how we feel that many of them basically let us down. Could you please tell us about how you went about launching this important initiative, Jews for Humanity? So I just wanted to say first that I have a lot of admiration for what Julie um, does and says, and I'm really honoured actually to be in this forum with her together. The admiration's uh, mutual, Lee, completely mutual. <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, look, it's um, it was really kind of a partisan, totally grassroots, totally on the spur of a moment decision for me. I just read the Overland letter and I saw among the signatures some people I like and respect, and uh, that really broke my heart. I mean, Julie already expressed those sentiments really well, so I don't need to repeat the, all that stuff about how betrayed we all, especially us, I think, uh, Jewish creatives who sort of traditional and journalists and academics who traditionally associated with, um, you know, what we call progressive circles. So I feel really, really betrayed. The letter was very inflammatory. It used incorrect um, facts. For example, it stated, you know, it still blamed Israel for that hospital attack that was disproved already by credible sources. Um, but more concerningly, it expressed no, um, no really sort of, uh, didn't even acknowledge what Hamas did. The language that was used was absolute of euphemisms and uh, 
the language of the letter was very inflammatory and incorrect. Of course, it had all this language of decolonization, which is a total, as we know, excuse my language, bullshit. And it talked about genocide and, you know, all those sort of terms. It's a very, very sensationalist sort of letter. So I, for, for about an hour, I was absolutely devastated. I just came home and I thought, well, am I going to be sort of uh, wallowing in this or am I going to do something about it? And my nature is to do things. Like that's how I cope with stuff. Uh, so I just sort of sent a very spontaneous email to about 60 Australian Jewish writers and journalists who I know saying, let's do something about it. And there was quite good response. And then it's kind of people started saying, well, why wouldn't we sort of extend it to all creatives? And then why not academics as well? And I thought these were all fantastic ideas because these are all people who, uh, as Julie was saying, journalists, uh, writers and academics, these are all people, artists generally. These are all people who really shape in so many ways the public opinion um, can, can have so much influence. Uh, so uh, very quickly... So at some point, uh, sort of, uh, I had a lot of um, different opinions. Should we do the letter? Should we not do the letter? What should be in the letter? So I ended up with about seven wonderful Jewish writers. It's not my achievement. I, I was only sort of uh, one of the team. And we wrote this letter where we really, the purpose of it was to try and pitch it as broadly as possible to um, people of all political persuasions in our creative and academic community. It was a really difficult task but as you were saying david very beautifully before uh it's really remarkable to see how our community is coming together and uniting at the moment and this letter is one of the um results of this sort of unification and and I, i've always before october 7 my dream was always to bring jews from left and right together to do things together as a tribe as opposed to sort of kind of have all this infighting always and so, yeah, we, we gathered about uh, 1,300 uh, signatures. We were in the media quite a bit, including New York Times as well. Um, I don't know if it will make any long-lasting impact, but I do know that I'm very proud that, uh, as I said before, with so many of us from different persuasions united. And another really great thing that came out of this letter is that in, at the same time, I also created um WhatsApp group. And uh, we call it Jewish Academics and Creatives, that Julie is a part of. And um, in this group, uh, we we uh, sort of we focused initially on the letter, but now we're focusing on all sorts of different action and support types for uh, our communities. Yes, as you were saying, we're seeing an enormous uh, consensus amongst most Jews from the left and right. But of course, there are the outliers uh, but largely Jews are united and past differences have been put aside, at least for the time being. Now, I hear so much commentary about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict arising from this war in Gaza that says that this is all about the occupation of Palestine. In my mind, such remarks are steeped in the combination of ignorance, a lack of understanding of the nature of the conflict, a submission to emotive hysteria that emanates from the anti-Israel propaganda machine, and fundamentally anti-Semitism. Now, how can those who are supportive of Israel counter this huge tsunami of lies and propaganda, misinformation and disinformation that is used to discredit Israel, whatever it does? Hmm. Julie? <laughs> I really don't know the answer to that. I can tell you where ground zero is and where the rot comes from, and it comes quite clearly from our universities. And it comes from humanities and arts departments in our universities and from a particular set of ideas that have a 
assumed a very crude form, and Lee spoke about those earlier, you know, decolonisation, um, the idea that the world is neatly divided into the oppressed and oppressors, and that, in fact, the chief oppressors are the West, <laughs> West, Western countries, Western liberal values, if you like, and that Israel is some kind of proxy for that. So all, all the evil... All the evil that um, that the West has been guilty of is kind of projected onto onto Israel in that way. Um, so I'm a little bit, um, I guess, cynical about this idea that if we get the facts out there, people will see the light and will change people's minds. Um, when it's coming from our elite institutions and where they're operating from a different framework. I mean, the point for them is that facts don't change anything, that facts do not change these meta-narratives about oppressed and oppressor, and so that therefore everything that happens just, just has to be fed back into this narrative. There can be no break in it. October 7 was no break in it. So they're very rigid about the way that they read power in the world, and these ideas, as I say, have taken on crude form, particularly, I think, in universities in the United States. It's then trickled into social media. It's become amplified in all sorts of toxic ways, gone back into the academy again. Um, and I think a lot of these people would be horrified uh, if I was to say to them that essentially this is a American import, as American as Coca-Cola, as American as Trump. But in a way it is. Um, so I'm not entirely sure about that old-fashioned, say, Hasbara approach where mm. if we just tell people that the IDF is, um, you know, taking such and such a steps, they'll understand where we're coming from. If we just explain to people about the Oslo Accords or whatever it is, they'll understand where we're coming from. So I'm not sure what we do, but I, I know that we have to fight in every way we can we have to fight back there was a terrific presentation i don't know if you guys have seen it in the last few days from bari weiss um, in the united states she gave a speech and she's a former new york times journalist who has gone off and started um, a different publication uh, uh, i model myself on her a, a little bit um, but she she basically said we're in the we're in the fight of our lives not just jews but everyone who believes in an idea of universal human rights and civilization. So we're fighting with it which everywhere in whatever way we can in all our various milieus, I think. You might be interested. I actually did uh, invite uh, Barry Weiss to come onto this program. The response oh. was that she is uh, not doing radio interviews anymore and, uh, uh, and an alternative has been suggested and that is actually uh, Eve Barlow who's uh, speaking tonight at an event uh, being conducted by the Zionist Federation of Australia. She was the uh, the guest, the gala guest at the Weezo's event in 2022. Now, I want to go on to another question uh, to get your reaction to the way that the media here have been reporting on what is going on in Gaza. Uh, I don't know whether you saw Q&A on the ABC on Monday, which was deplorable, uh, so much of uh, what I'm I'm hearing is in the same in the same basket. What what do you make of uh, the way the media is going about doing things, and what I'm 
hearing in particular is uh, people who are on the uh, anti-Israel bandwagon are being given an opportunity to talk now in a way that they never had before. I think it's true that the spokespeople for the Palestinian community are certainly more radical than they were before. The language is more radical, so that's another shift that's taken place. I think the Q&A was interesting. I, I, I personally thought that Patricia Carvelis did a wonderful job. I think she did a really admirable job in, in difficult circumstances. In, in many ways, I'm not necessarily a fan of a lot of her work, but I think she really rose to the occasion that night. I am about the media. Look, you know, you could you could be listening to the ABC and then you could read the Australian and you would think that there are two different wars going on. So it's very polarising uh, and we're in a situation where journalists are activists. So, um, for instance, um, I know that a number of my colleagues and I have the same sense of shock and heartbreak uh, signed a letter even at the last Gaza war in 2021 saying that Israel-Palestine shouldn't be reported in the usual both sides way. And those particular reporters are waging struggles within newsrooms, within the ABC, within The Age, to try and change the ground rules of reporting. And so I think that's creating a lot of tension. The, the main talking points we're getting are the uh, increasing death toll which is coming to us from the Hamas Ministry of Health, which, in my view, is just an alias for the Hamas Ministry of Propaganda. And we can't necessarily believe uh, any, anything that they're, they're telling us uh, with figures of four and a half to 5,000 children. These, these are taken as, uh, as fact without any disputation whatsoever. And, of course, Israel is not in any position to uh, dispute any of this sort of information. So it goes out there. And it was so predictable uh, that we're going to hear this question of, of what about the children when it came to uh, Q&A and, and many, many uh, uh, discussions which involve anybody who's uh, talking about this issue. Do you want to uh, say something about that, Lee? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I noticed, I mean, speaking about uh, reporting, I noticed that very often in media, um, uh, the way that sort of the conflict is reported in terms of deaths is that there were about over um, 1,200 civilians in Israel with their, uh, or people in Israel uh, that were um, killed. And then uh, then there's a number about, you know, Gazan civilians and, the, and among them so, so many children. But we sort of the children on, on the Israeli side are never mentioned. But I actually wanted to, if you permission, David, to respond to your previous question, which... Uh, which I was absolutely fascinated listening to Julie talking about the causes of, of the incredible disinformation at the moment. And I wanted to answer the second, the, the question in terms of like, what can be done? Cause I'm a practical person. I'm not a politician. I always like to think, what can I do? Uh, maybe that's my military habit <laughs> from being in Israeli army. I don't know, but, uh, um, I, I'm, I'm not extraordinarily optimistic, but I'm not pessimistic either. Because in my experience, and I've been since the conflict began, I mean, actually, I'm not a political animal, but since the conflict began, I, it's like I turned to somebody else. I've been out there all the time on social media, uh, having conversations with people I normally wouldn't have in, in real life as well. And my sense is that there can be, things can be done. I totally agree with Julie with a lot of the, this really awful propaganda comes from universities. 
But I think there are the loudest voices that we hear at the moment are not necessarily the voices that represent the community. And I've had a lot of conversations with people who outwardly support the rallies and, and sort of uh, very quick to, to say to sort of shout slogans. But once you have a conversation with them, actually, uh, I've noticed with people I talk to, they would post very differently, if at all about the conflict. Of course, you can't talk to everybody, but I think it's a really good time for us at the moment. Uh, very um, uh, uh, Jewish people who come from all sort of persuasions to start making our voice much louder. In some ways, I actually feel liberated by this conflict. It's funny to say it because it's a tragedy and I'm devastated and in pieces about it. But I also feel liberated because I finally uh, voice opinions uh, about Israel and about antisemitism. I didn't feel allowed allowed or I didn't feel I would be listening to before this conflict. And um, I, I, it's not just the private conversations. I've been really doing a constant, continuous stream of posting on social media. Not in a confrontational way, not in saying they're always in, uh, trying to be informative. Um, and also I'm trying to uh, touch people emotionally. So I kind of care a lot about how I feel and things like this. And I think, um, and I think people listen. I think now... People are absolutely, those who are not the extremists, they're absolutely fascinating. They're learning, they're trying to educate themselves. They they, they start, finally, with sort of uh, uh, all those platitudes of colonization, etc., being actually examined by some people who are not necessarily on on the extremist side. And I, I'm, I might, again, I might be optimistic, but that's what sort of I've been seeing around. Yeah, I should just say, uh, on the point I made just before, uh, I listened to a report uh, from Alison Horn this morning, which was all about uh, the, the misery going on in Gaza. From, from my understanding, uh, Alison Horn is not even situated in Gaza, and she's just watching pictures that are transmitted to her from Gaza and making comments uh, upon, upon those uh, pictures, which uh, I don't think is uh, the way journalism should really be conducted. Maybe uh, you can uh, say something about that. But one thing I also wanted to say is that I have also contacted um, the Minister for Police, uh, Anthony Carbines, and uh, I spoke to him on the weekend, inviting him to come onto the show. Uh, they said the message was going to be conveyed to him. Uh, I've heard uh, nothing, and I think uh, that the, um, the state government in, uh, in Victoria is showing uh, a serious lack of uh, leadership in dealing with this the, the quote that came from Jacinta Allen was that our number one priority should be all about providing love, care, respect and support. So what, uh, what do you think of our political leadership, uh, Lee and, uh, and Julie? I think it's absolutely pathetic. Uh, look, I couldn't agree more. I am extremely disappointed with the Allen government in particular. I mean, I, I, I think the federal government overall has been okay. You know, I'm, I'm still with the federal government, but I am really done with the Allen government. And that is an incredibly painful thing for me to say. I am a true believer. I am a rusted on Labor person, but I think she has failed to show leadership. That began, like you say, in the aftermath of Friday night, where we had um, a very angry group descend on Caulfield and there were the ugly scenes and it was intimidating and menacing. And for her afterwards to say 
you know, usual kind of Alan government speak, blah, 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 diversity, blah, 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 you know, multiculturalism, social cohesion, blah, 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 and we're against anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Now, the story of Friday night was not a story about Islamophobia, but that just becomes this kind of knee-jerk reaction where leaders think that they have to, you know, say that as well. Um, and I think I am especially disappointed in her response to the school strike that is being uh, planned for next week where school students um, are being encouraged in, and, and whipped up in some way to go out and strike for Palestine. Public schools need to be politically neutral safe spaces for everyone and she needs to come out more strongly against that strike and uh in the interests of, in this case, the vulnerable minority, Jewish students, I'm thoroughly disappointed. She's just failed to rise to the occasion. So we're about to run out of time, Lee. Can I give you the last minute to uh, to say anything else you'd like on this uh, serious matter? So I really don't have anything to add. I think Julie summarised it very succinctly. But I think also, again, this is an opportunity for us for action in our WhatsApp group, which, by the way, uh, it's not just all my undertaking. I forgot to mention one of the uh, people who does it jointly with me is Noe Harsel, who is the CEO of the Jewish Museum, and she's been absolutely incredible. So these are the kind of things we are trying to address on WhatsApp and we partner on our WhatsApp group. And we also partnered with uh, lawyers WhatsApp group, Jewish lawyers. And so we're trying to look at this sort of uh, lobbying and and, and uh, systemic approaches to, to things like this. And I'd also yeah. commend uh, an article that uh, one of the people who signed, Simon Tedeschi, has written, which is published mm -hmm. uh, by the ABC. Yeah. Stunningly worth reading. I thank you both yeah. for yes. talking to me today. It's been, uh, I would say it's a, it's a delight, uh, but uh, I don't know whether that word really applies uh, in the current circumstances. Thank you very much indeed. Thank, thank you, you, David. <laughs> So I was just talking to Lee Kaufman and Julie Zego. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection. Bye.